This episode of Engineering Matters is dedicated to Jackie Whitelaw, the best engineering communicator we've ever known. We as a, a human species are exploring further. This is kind of that edge of the boundary. Because we already have come so far in the International Space Station. So the gateway in itself, it really opens those possibilities to the future. We don't know exactly what that path is going to look like because in, in science, you're, you're kind of learning as you go along. I mean, everyone is interested. Everyone wants to inspire a future generation of engineers and scientists and those types of things. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And this is a very special episode. Special because we're talking to the US National Aeronautics and Space Administration. NASA. The same NASA whose Apollo mission put men on the moon in 1969, launched the Cassini mission in 1997 to take those amazing images of Saturn, and has put rovers on Mars to name just a few of its achievements. In this episode, we are finding out about a new mission that is critical to the next step of human exploration of space and living off-planet. We're talking about the Lunar Gateway, a small space station that will orbit the Moon and act as a hub, supporting operations on the surface and in lunar space. It will facilitate communication with Earth, allow for scientific experiments in deep space and act as a staging area for supply missions. It's not every day that you get to speak to NASA, so for this episode we asked for some help with our questions from some children from a school near our recording studio. So special thanks to Lockers Park School, and listen out for their questions later. This week we're joined by two experts from NASA who are part of the Lunar Gateway programme. But before we get into the detail of this station, the first permanent human outpost in deep space, we need to understand the wider mission that this is part of, the Artemis program. Support for this episode comes from Ground Force. Your solution, created by Ground Force Shawco, is an interactive standard solutions design tool created to offer easy access to standard solutions, saving time and effort to receive a temporary works design. Built by the award-winning team at Groundforce, this easy-to-use program puts our standard solutions right at your fingertips. Access is available 24-7 on mobile devices and desktops directly from the Groundforce website. All designs created are made available in the Groundforce technical library. Find your solution today on the Groundforce website. That's at www.vpgroundforce.com. And now... Back to the episode. It has been 50 years since humans were last on the moon. And if you ask people who were alive in the time of Apollo, this is not the future they expected. The dream was to reach the moon in the 60s, Mars in the 70s or 80s, and then beyond. It didn't quite turn out that way. Of the 12 astronauts who took that small step onto the moon, just four are still with us. 
The last time a person walked on the moon was 14th of December 1972, almost 50 years ago. Since then, human operations have been confined to Earth orbit. But during that time, technology has not stood still. In November 2000, three people stepped on board the International Space Station. It's been crewed ever since. It's the longest uninterrupted human presence in space history. Armed with the experience of keeping people alive and healthy in space, as well as 50 years of engineering advances. In automation, digital design, in rocketry, in precision engineering, and in materials science. Not to mention the sight of reusable rockets landing vertically, which will never stop being exciting for some of us, but nonetheless is now common. People began to wonder if our ambitions in space could stretch further. Perhaps the time was right to dust off some of those old dreams. In 2017, NASA was directed by the White House to return astronauts to the moon. The Artemis program was born, but there would be some key differences to the days of Apollo. The program is more ambitious than a few quick visits. Returning astronauts to the lunar surface by 2024, including the first woman to set foot on the moon, will take dozens of launches and cost an estimated $35 billion. And this is only part of the story. In the late 2020s, it hopes to build a lunar outpost and begin a sustained human presence on the lunar surface, a moon base. Current concepts see this consisting of a habitat, a mobile habitat, which is basically a large pressurised rover for longer journeys on the surface, and another moon buggy. But really, it's all just the beginning. NASA wants to lay the foundations for private companies to start to build a lunar economy based around manufacturing, resources, energy, and anything else the private sector can think of. And we will do an episode on space resources in a few weeks. There is another difference with Apollo. In the 1960s, really only two countries were capable of participating in the space race, and it was a competition. This time, many more countries have a role to play, and NASA is encouraging international cooperation throughout Artemis. The participating countries have signed up to a set of cooperation agreements called the Artemis Accords, which we have linked to in the show notes. And all of the excitement on the surface of the Moon is enabled by one critical piece of infrastructure up in orbit, looking down on everything. The Lunar Gateway Space Station. The Apollo missions that, that were fantastic and landed via the Saturn V and, and launched the crew and the landers to the lunar surface, those were three-day missions to the lunar surface. They had to take everything with them and to come back with small samples of a return. This is Sean Fuller. He's NASA's international partner manager for Gateway. There are so many components of the space station made by so many agencies. He is the perfect person to give an overview of the program. As we go now into what we call sustainable exploration, we look at a stepping off point, and which is what Gateway is. It's a location that landers can fly up to, much larger landers, and stay in lunar orbit. The crew then comes up they will come to Gateway, the opportunity to research on Gateway as a small station in a completely different environment than we've been in before, but then also crews to get into these landers and go down to the surface and do their work on the surface. And we're talking a minimum of about six days. So, so our orbit on Gateway 
is such that it goes around the moon every six and a half to seven days. And so you get intervals of that duration on the lunar surface. And by having gateway, what that means then is the lander then goes back up just to gateway. So it only needs fuel to get from the lunar surface up to gateway. The significance of that is that a lunar lander only has to worry about transitioning between gateway and the surface and back, which is easy in terms of fuel and also requires no heat shielding. It means the vehicle can be specialised. Basically, we need to design heavy-duty rockets for getting out of Earth's immense gravity and atmosphere. But everywhere else, vehicles can be designed to be much lighter. Now, Gateway also, in, in that realm, is going to help us as a stepping stone for future missions that perhaps go beyond the Moon and go out to, to places such as Mars. Again, a stepping stone where you spend your energy coming off the, the Earth's surface, get into an orbit that's away uh, largely from Earth's gravity well, can get, do your activities to integrate there and get ready, and then go off to your final destination. Like the International Space Station, the Lunar Gateway will be modular. An initial couple of core sections will be placed to provide communication support for early missions, but then this will be supplemented with further modules. Progress on Artemis has been rapid and its final configuration has yet to be decided. But metal is already being cut for the core modules of the station. The first is known as the Power and Propulsion Element, or PP. And it does just as its name implies. It provides the power and the propulsion of, for Gateway. That is currently being built by a, a U.S. company, Maxar, that is building that based on existing satellite buses. So it's enhanced uh, to provide the additional capabilities uh, for Gateway, but it's based on uh, a bus that they fly uh, on satellites today. Uh, so that's being developed. And in fact, I'll point out the solar arrays on that are uh, very, very similar to the solar arrays that the ISS is upgrading now as we speak. There's spacewalks going on to do that. And so we're using that new technology from the ISS and applying it uh, to Gateway as well. So that's uh, the first element. The next is called HALO, the Habitation and Logistics Outpost. And so that's our first small pressurized element. So that, that's where crew can ingress in there. That's being done by a U.S. company called Northrop Grumman that's developing Halo, uh, but it really involves many around the world. And so what I mean is within that, the primary structure for Halo is being developed by Tassi, Talos Alinea Space Italy. It's actually being manufactured in Turin, Italy uh, today. There are components of that, that that have been manufactured for the primary structure. It will, again, house uh, the crew, also provide some research opportunities both internal as well as fixtures on the outside uh, for external research and docking ports. Once in space, they will fire electric thrusters to spiral out to a lunar orbit and become the first pieces of Gateway. Building off of that, then the next that they're confirmed and part of Gateway is the core modules, the European uh, International Habitat, and so that adds our capabilities to really have a home for the crew. With Halo and PP, Orion can come visit. Orion is a crewed spacecraft built by Lockheed Martin and Airbus that will take astronauts beyond low Earth orbit to Lunar Gateway. It will be launched from the Earth's surface on the Space Launch System rocket, a conventional, non-reusable, super heavy lift rocket. Adding the IHAB module ends the reliance on Orion for life support once astronauts are at Gateway. 
With IHAB, it has those capabilities, a lot of that provided by our Japanese colleagues within the IHAB that provides a life support. Uh, the CO2 scrubbing, for example, uh, crew quarters, uh, water, uh, a galley, those type items to, to support the crew in Gateway. And, and so that, that really rounds out our habitation components there. But then there's other key parts that are part of the, the baseline gateway, uh, a refueling module, again, a, a European uh, contribution uh, that's being developed uh, by ESA uh, with uh, TAS France, as well as TAS UK, actually doing uh, some of the uh, bi-propellant refueling system in there. That provides refueling for PPE, uh, for our power and propulsion uh, system, because it doesn't launch with the fuel that's needed for a 15-year life of Gateway. This module, known as Esprit, will have viewing ports for the crew to see the lunar surface as well as operations. And then I would say uh, the last element of a core element uh, that comes in from pressurized elements is the airlock. And so there will be an airlock that will support crew uh, spacewalks as well as the transfer of scientific equipment and replacement parts internal and external to Gateway. So you can take it through this small equipment lock without needing the crew to go external on a spacewalk. In addition to that, there's a couple other pieces of Gateway, the Canadian arm. So that'll be flown up with a logistics module that will provide logistics resupply to Gateway. That's a key piece of Gateway. Again, it's a part that's gonna allow us to do activities outside, to take external research off of a logistics module, place it on Gateway, move it around Gateway, those type activities. And then the logistics module itself, which will give us the cargo that we need. Typically, a logistics mission would fly to Gateway about a month before the crew would arrive. Supplies can aggregate at Gateway ahead of a mission, which again is a lot more efficient than taking everything needed as part of the actual mission flight. Everything is waiting for the astronauts when they arrive. Inside Gateway is expected to be about one-sixth the size of the International Space Station, but advances in technology and the demands of deep space mean that there will be some changes. The most visually obvious will be the solar panels. You know, if you look at Gateway, it is a bit different. So ISS is a much larger, much bigger power demand. And so one of the things that, that, that really sticks out at you on ISS is the truss structure and the solar arrays there to support that. So that was, that was much earlier technology, probably 30 year ago or so, uh, technology on the solar arrays. And one of the things you can see is I mentioned we're updating the solar arrays on ISS. So new arrays with larger capacity of power generation are much smaller in size. We'll take advantage of that on Gateway. The arrays that'll produce up to 60 kilowatts of power, much smaller than it would, it would have been on ISS. Uh, in terms of the overall structure, again, there's trades you do based on the size in terms of materials and what's the, the best application for it. But fundamentally, it is a pressurized hard structure. Although one designed for deep space, not low earth orbit. Yeah, there's a couple of things, and especially when we look at, at how we're operating Gateway. So first of all, it's farther away. On the ISS, the crew can get in a capsule and be home on the Earth in an emergency case in a matter of an hour to two hours in, in, a, in a strict emergency case. Obviously, uh, at the lunar orbit, you're a lot farther away. So you take those kind of things into consideration in your design and your contingency capabilities there. And so that, that's part of the difference in, in how we look at that. It's obviously a different radiation environment. In low Earth orbit, we're protected by the Van Allen belts. 
The Van Allen belts are two donut-shaped areas of energetic charged particles, originating from the Sun but held in place around the Earth by the magnetosphere. Travelling within the belts exposes spacecraft to these particles, and travelling beyond them leaves craft vulnerable to cosmic rays and other deep space hazards. Such deep space infrastructure is likely to incorporate a heavily shielded radiation shelter for the crew in case they need to take refuge from a solar event. We actually go through the Van Allen belts, which in and of itself can be a challenge to outside of that in our orbit around uh, the moon. And so that's different. Uh, it's a lot different in your electronics equipment if you're living there. In other words, it's staying there for a long duration as opposed to visiting over a week or two. And so that's, I would say, is a, a significant change in there. And then probably the, the biggest one that we look at as well is Gateway will be human tended. And so what that means is there will be visits by the crew on a yearly basis in the range of 30 to 60 day timeframes are there, but a vast majority of the time they'll be uncrewed. And so there won't be a crew there to respond to any failures. And so we look really hard at our reliability and redundancy across Gateway so that during the uncrewed timeframes, we have that reliability that we need there to get us to each mission. Crewed or uncrewed, the Gateway will always be progressing along an eccentric orbit, which provides its own opportunities, allowing humans to look out at the system from a completely new vantage point, and providing a new environment for research. It's interesting, it's called an NRHO orbit, Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit. So it's an orbit around the Moon, but it's really in a balance of the Earth-Moon-Sun system that establishes that orbit. It, uh, it goes up uh, at uh, Apolloon, it's about 70,000 kilometers from the Moon's surface, and at Paraloon, it's down around the 1,500 to 2,000 kilometers. And so part of it, if you think, we want to go uh, to the lunar south pole. And so there's a lot of untapped research and science to be done there with uh, water ice uh, at the lunar south pole. And so with this highly elliptical orbit, as you can imagine, you've got the moon and, and the uh, Apolloon is off of the south pole. Gateway will see that south pole from much longer duration. And so in terms of a calm relay uh, from there, uh, also for the crew to, to interact with the crew on the surface, this orbit uh, affords us that. It's also farther away from the lunar surface than a low lunar orbit. And so what that means is the SLS and Orion system uh, launching off of the Earth to get into that orbit, it doesn't require quite as much energy to get into that orbit. That orbit that we have planned now for Gateway, that's where our first elements will go to when they launch in 2024. But we also have the capability in Gateway to change orbits if we need to. And so we have that as options in front of us if we learn something different on the lunar surface or as missions change, we have the ability to change the orbit as well. And again, drawing on our support from the children at the local school, Nikandros, age 11, and Thomas, age 13, asked Sean what he thought the main benefits are of returning to the moon, this time to stay. That's a, that's a great question. And so there's, there's a lot of benefits and, and there's ones that we know today and ones that we will learn along the way. And I would kind of tell you, if we look back in human history, and Christopher Columbus said, you know, I'm going to go sail. I think that, that I'm going to find a new route to the East Indies. I don't know what's out there, but I'm going to go sail in that direction and see what I discover. And look what was discovered. You know, as we are adventuring in farther into space, 
You know, we know things about the moon now that we did not know during the Apollo era. Things about the, the water that's, that's contained within the regolith uh, due to our, our obser observation satellites. We're going to go there. We're going to learn about that. We're probably going to learn great things about the history of the Earth and our solar system from the moon that we did not know in the past. And it's going to help us expand humanity even farther out beyond Earth moon to new realms that we haven't been to before. So as we go out there, think about where we're going to go, but all the new things we're going to learn. Just like every year in school, you learn, learn new things you didn't know before. We're going to go out there and learn the, the, the unknowns, the, what we did not know was out there before, and that's going to help us as we move forward. To get the hardware that's required for a space station all the way out to cislunar space, it's going to take quite a lot of rockets. This is Dina Contella, formerly Mission Control Flight Director and now Manager for Mission Integration and Utilization on Gateway. Mission integration involves all kinds of things like shipping cargo out to the Gateway station. It involves the, um, I guess I'd say, the activity management of which things are prioritized, what is the crew working on, uh, that kind of thing. So it involves a lot of things. And utilization is code word for science and technology and maybe commercial type of things. So I am basically an enabler to get all the science community's wishes and desires onto the gateway. Dina says that in the early days of Gateway, it will still be useful for science, but primarily it will be focused on building Gateway itself. And then later, as we have regular cargo flights, we'll be installing new science and that sort of thing. And then we'll uh, as well have a lot more crew time potentially that's available when they're not working on making the space station a space station, they can then do a lot more research functionality. This is measured in what are called slots for science experiments. When we first get there, when we first deploy our first module, that's the habitation and logistics outpost. It'll internally be capable of carrying basically eight, eight slots, I'd say, for science. And then on the external pieces, we'll be able to, to have three slots for science. Um, and then later when we get an international hab, we're looking at adding an additional four external slots and an additional eight internal slots. The designs are still being finalized. So these numbers aren't set. So you can see that each time we add a module, then we get more and more capability. And so that's, that's exciting. So we do increase our capability. And then when we have cargo flights that go out there regularly, we'll use the Canadian robotic arm to switch out the science on the outside um, with new science. And, and then same thing on the inside, we'll have the crew installing um, new science in, in various slots. So in terms of research, that's how it would grow. But additionally, I'd say its function also grows. So although we're going to the moon, and that's the main mission, we're also going there to prepare to go to Mars. And so you can see that, you know, you can envision that if we have a long trip to Mars, and then the crew has to go to the surface, come back up, and then come on a long trip home, there's a lot of zero gravity in there. So we're talking a long period of time. So uh, the, the trip out there to Mars, too, is in deep space, where you're not protected by the Van Allen belts and, and the Earth's magnetosphere at Earth. So the crew is exposed to a lot that uh, is basically a different environment, a different radiation environment on the way there. So we need to do long-term deep space human research for this. And Gateway is a big piece of that. 
This is in addition to the thousands of kilograms of supplies that Gateway needs to be able to handle to support crew for their stay and on the lunar surface. The ISS is a very large vehicle and, you know, it's like the equivalent of probably a six bedroom house. And then the Gateway is going to be more like a, a large master closet. It'll be a lot smaller. So it'll be a different experience for the crew. They'll be a lot further from home as well. And so I think that this will be a good test um, of what it's going to be like for Mars transportation as well. And, you know, not trying to live in a confined space. So part of what we want to study human health wise is behavioral and uh, what, what changes that might have um, in terms of the crew's, I guess, um, ability to, to work successfully. But there are far more scientific opportunities available, far more, in fact, than could ever be supported by one space station. And satisfying all of these demands is complicated. Each scientist is excited about one, something else, but we do have heliophysics guys. They're really excited about the space weather. This is just one example, but there's a long list of things they're really wanting to study, the effects on the human body and also the behavioral health of the astronauts as well. So that's some of the early science. And then what we're trying to do now is understand what all the different partner agencies are interested in studying long-term on Gateway. So you can imagine that we have the capability to study the environment out there, but also there might be some Mars technology uh, or materials experiments that they might want to have. You have astrobiologists that are interested in what does the external radiation do to, to both internally and externally to the vehicle? Uh, what does that do to, to organisms? We have a whole host of things that folks are ready to go study, and they're excited especially about the radiation environment, I'll say. So fitting all of these competing science demands is complicated and is something Dina has to deal with. I'd say wrangling with, and I don't know if I, maybe that's a Texas term, but we are still trying to figure out how to fit all the systems on. In fact, let me just give you an example. So we'd like to have a toilet on board that would supplement the toilet that the crew um, has when they bring up uh, in the Orion spacecraft. So we need a toilet for long-term use on Gateway. And we're trying to figure out is that where's the best location for that toilet? Is it in the international hub? Or maybe we want to put it in a logistics you know, module. We're still trying to work through all of those details because it is um, a pretty complex system, the space toilet. So just as an example, you know, we're still trying to figure out what to do with that. Um, and so uh, it's, a, it's a complex matter trying to fit it all into a specific, a very small vehicle. And drawing again on the insight of the pupils at Lockers Park, Sebastian, aged 11, asked how people and equipment are protected from the lunar dust, the regolith, if they land on the moon. Well, Sebastian, you're ahead of your time because this is actually a major issue that we're tracking right now is what are we gonna do to prevent the dust from causing major damage? So first let's talk about the EVA suits. These are the spacesuits, I should say, um, for extravehicular activity. So the Apollo astronauts, they had a, a very hard time keeping the dust off of their suits and then it, it comes into the, to the cabin and then later it can get into their lungs and their eyes and it can get into equipment. You can imagine like it getting into your camera, sand at the beach, right? So it's kind of like that where it just gets into everything as pervasive. And then when you get into zero gravity, the dust lifts up and it's floating all around. So it becomes a major problem. Dina says that the first thing they are trying to do is to make sure that they understand how to get the dust off of the suits. 
And so we have some different schemes. You know, clearly you can use a, du a dust brush, but there are other schemes that working at um, that could uh, maybe electrostatically or otherwise keep the dust off. So we're trying to work that right now from that perspective. And then inside the cabin, we have to worry about the crew members breathing and that sort of thing. So we're gonna have things like um, very fine filters, but those filters require change out. And you know, just how much, uh, how much is good enough for human health, all that has to really kind of be well understood before, we, before, before that happens. So we have quite a bit of study to do. I'm not sure if you've also seen, but we can also get dust accumulating on things like, uh, like the Mars rover accumulating on the solar arrays uh, of the solar cells. And we've got a similar situation, even all the way at Gateway after the, after the lander lands on the moon, it kicks up dust and that dust can even come back all the way up to the Gateway and it could accumulate as well on the Gateway. You can imagine that this lander that lands on the moon, it's going to get dust all over it, and then it's going to come and dock at the gateway. And you can imagine sort of a big cloud of dust that kind of piles on gateway that way as well. So there's a, a lot of things that we need to, to think about, dust accumulation both inside and outside. Um, so I'm really happy you asked, Sebastian. We haven't solved all the problems yet, but we're working on that. Expanding into space is a scientific and industrial imperative. We live in a world that is finite, a fact that is becoming increasingly apparent, and although a lot of our longer-term aims in space may seem like an unattainable science fiction, it all begins with a dream. So one of the things I like to do, and, and I have younger kids, and we kind of do it as a family, is when a space station flies over, to go outside and see that, really let that sink in that there are people living there. And then the next level to that now is there have been people living there for over 20 years. So for anyone that's 20 years old or younger, during their entire life, there have always been people living off planet. But now we're ready to go further. Now we're about ready to take that next step. And imagine that day when you can look up and look around the moon, take your telescope and see a glint of a what will look initially like a star orbiting around the moon. And that is where humanity has stepped to. If you kind of take a step back and think about that, that really says a lot about what we're doing and what we're doing collectively with us and all of our partners to expand that. And so I look forward to that day we see that and just let that sink in for a bit of how far we have stretched and we have built a system where people can live there for a duration of time. And maybe someday people will look up and see thousands of twinkling lights on the moon. Absolutely, absolutely. You'll, you'll see that and you'll know that, that uh, we as a species are there. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own space oddity is Rory Harris. Special thanks to NASA. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.